Bond parachutes out of a plane. Three chutes open and we see a big ball at the end of the chutes as it splashes into the ocean. It's some type of rubber transport ball kind of thing and Bond is in it and he manipulates it to the oil rig where he thinks Blofeld is running his operations. What is this thing? This is just one of the many gadgets used in Diamonds Are Forever. Hi, this is Dan Silvestri. Tom Pizzotto. I'm Vicky Hodges. Join us as we crack the code of this and the other gadgets in Diamonds Are Forever. Check us out at our website, spymovienavigator.com, and subscribe to our show, Cracking the Code of Spy Movies, through your favorite podcast app. And today we have Joe Papalardo back as a special guest again to discuss these gadgets. First, welcome back, Joe, and tell us again who you're right for and what types of stories you cover. Yeah, well, thanks for having me, first of all. Yeah, I work for, I'm a freelance writer, but I am a, have worked for Popper Mechanics and National Geographic and Air and Space Smithsonian. For all three of those, I've covered SpaceX, military, and space weapons, Space Force now. And uh, my, my most recent is a book called Inferno, which is about a World War II bomber crew and I cover all the sort of dangerous and kind of spooky stuff so uh it there's a lot of overspill into the Bond movies to be honest yeah great and your book is available on amazon.com right sure is cool all right we'll start out by looking at the biggest gadget in the movie the satellite laser weapon this satellite laser can destroy cities target ships and subs and more Blofeld plans to auction the weapon to the highest bidder. Yeah, now there are two points I actually want to make about this satellite laser thing. First, it's similar in concept to a failed weapon that the Nazis tried to develop in World War II called a heliobeam or sun gun. And that tool tried to create an orbital technology that would harness the power of the sun to shoot a beam to Earth to destroy things. This was before lasers were invented, so they tried to use the sun to do, to do this. We see a helio beam used in the 1966 Matt Helm movie with, with Dean Martin called Murderer's Row. Well, maybe this is a myth, but some historians believe it's true that Archimedes invented a giant bronze mirror that used the sun to set Roman warships afire during a big battle in 212 BCE. There have been reenactments by Mythbusters and others, and it looks doubtful but maybe it's not impossible. Okay. So there you go, using the sun as a weapon. All right. Now, back into using the laser, there's actually a scientific misstatement in this that drives me insane every time I hear it. Willard White says the first laser beam was generated through a diamond. Now, we did a podcast on Moonraker, and Joe mentioned that a crystal would probably be better than a diamond. Well, the first laser beam generated was through a ruby, not a diamond, right, by a guy named Theodore Maiman. We have a YouTube video on our Cracking the Code of Spy Movies YouTube channel that talks about the use of lasers in spy movies. If you want to see more information about where they're using these things and how they're using them. All right. So as for the believability of this thing, though, I'd say it probably is not believable. Being able to produce this beam using a diamond from the distance from the satellite to the earth with the power to heat things up in 1971, I'm going to call no. <laughs> well, I, the, the thing about that Nazi program was that you can't call it a failure because it was a hundred year plan. 
And if you look at a hundred year plan, they were on the hundred year plan to launch something, a, a space station into space easily. They were already working on the rocketry to do so. So much so that Operation Paperclip and the rest, we got the, you know, the cream of the, the German rocketry crop to launch Apollo ultimately. So, so they were on track to make that happen if, if it was possible. And they weren't the only ones to look at this as, as a weapons. And I'm talking specifically about using the sun and focusing rays. There's a lot of these schemes that actually are out there. China has one. Uh, a lot of them are illumination schemes to, to provide light, you know, in a, in a place that doesn't have a lot of power. That was, that was something that happened, in, you know, just a couple of years ago, that idea came out. And the math works. That's not concentrating into a specific game to destroy something, but it's just a matter of scale if you really wanted to. So it's a really inefficient way of doing it, but it's not impossible. And the latest twist on this, and it's particularly cool because it's an, it's an industrialist who has space aspirations, two of them, Bezos and Musk, have small are proposing or even launching small satellite networks. Now, could a, a small satellite network harness enough beams, beam it to each other and concentrate it down anywhere on the planet is a question that not maybe not seriously, I haven't seen any Defense Department papers on it or anything, but is actually being discussed sort of by the armchair, you know, space enthusiasts a little bit. So th there's a lot of different schemes, but at the end of the day, it becomes infinitely easier just to drop something heavy from space and cause a huge impact and more damage than it would be to try to shoot it as with a laser. The, the problem being you run out of ammunition and the laser never runs out of ammunition is the counter to that. But, yeah. but there's usually an easier way of destroying something from space or even on the ground, quite frankly, than to build a, an orbiting you know, solar refraction kind of a system or even a solar laser system. But it's not that different than collecting solar power and beaming it down to space, which is another thing that actually very serious people are considering doing. Sure. Um, because you get greater solar energy in orbit, obviously, than something on the ground. And you're not destroying whatever it is that's on the ground with a solar panel either. So, so beaming power, solar power to the planet is not ridiculous at all. And if you focus it enough, you could burn a hole in something. But if you're going through all that effort, you might as well build a different weapon system to do it. So... Believable, yeah. Plausible, no, if that makes any kind of sense. In the 70s, ridiculous. But, um, you know, I like to push these things forward just for the for the sheer fun of it. All right. <laughs> cool. So, okay, so the first gadget we see is in the pre-title sequence. It's the finger snapper that Bond has in his pocket in case someone is trying to get his gun. It looks like a trick you'd buy at the local trick shop and not something made by Q. This is one of our least favorite gadgets ever in a spy film. It's just silly. Oh, wait, I'm not going to go that far with my criticism of it. In fact, when I first, when we went through this and I wrote up my notes on this, I actually thought it was a good gadget for its purpose. Yes, it may not be up to the standards of some of the Bond gadgets, but it's believable that you could have something in your pocket and somebody sticks their hands in it and it clamps down on it like that. It really looked like it would hurt if such a device existed in your pocket. Yeah, but Bond's got his gun in a holster. So where is this little clip thing? In your pocket, okay, I could see it in the pocket. It's a little, it is a trick store gadget, but, you know, he's got his gun in a holster. Where are you putting this thing? I don't, I, I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So in the movie, we see Blofeld is more than a man. He's multiple men. <laughs> 
reproduction of Blofeld through some type of science is interesting here. Again, perhaps the masks idea that we've seen in From Russia with Love in the opening sequence or from Mission Impossible, the TV show, or earlier movies, maybe even help to find how Blofeld could clone himself. It's not clear, but we can suspend our disbelief for one more time and say, okay, this could be done. They use this trope in Thunderball as well with Dervil and Palazzi, played by Paul Stasino. Plastic surgery was used to create a duplicate. It's more than a mask in Thunderball and in Diamonds Are Forever. The person's face has been physically changed through plastic surgery. And yes, I think it's believable. What I really loved was the use of the multiple white caps. That was great. <laughs> and let's Bond have another classic line, but wrong pussy. Gotta love it. <laughs> you got to give hats off to the writers when they're, 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 <laughs> they're fabricating an entire scene around a line they want to write. I think. <laughs> okay, that's cool. And anyway, Paul Stasino, by the way, has been in a number of the Saint TV episodes around the same time as this movie a little earlier. So they use them over and over again. He's really a good actor. All right. Yeah, now there's there's another really cool gadget that came out of the Q Labs, and I really like this one. I'm talking about the fake fingerprint to make Bond appear to be Peter Franks because he's using Peter Franks's fingerprint. When Tiffany Case checks the glass that Bond has touched, she validates that he's Franks because of the fingerprint. Of course, today they're experimenting with fake fingerprints that can feel pressure and temperature, and they're looking to expand those capabilities, which can be huge in enhancing the sensation in artificial limbs. Now, in 1971, they just wanted to fool Tiffany Case that Bond was Franks because with the fingerprint. Wouldn't a photo have just been a huge help <laughs> instead of having to stick it into that, that lab thing in her bedroom. Yeah. I mean, today you can unlock your iPhone with your fingerprint. Heck, I have a fingerprint lock on my wine room in my house. I mean, if anyone's going to be afraid of imposters, it's going to be them. I mean, they have all those Blofelds running around. You might not trust the facial recognition kind of a thing. Yeah, hey, there you go. That's or verification true. on there. That's true. If you're going to go to the efforts of cloning the face, are you going to do the same thing with the fingerprints? I, I don't know. I don't know. I thought it was pretty cool and believable for the time, for sure. And uh, I think there was even some Sherlock Holmes stories written by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle that used the same concept of reproducing a fingerprint and putting it elsewhere to make it look like that guy committed the crime or whatever. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I think it's good. Yeah. And fingerprint identification has been going on since way back in 200 BCE, where fingerprints were used to sign contracts in ancient Babylon. So, yep. We believe this peel-off fingerprint technology. Yeah, it's good. So another cool gadget was Blofeld's voice synthesizer that let him sound like Willard White. I liked it. It's kind of cool. And, of course, Q came up with one, too. I think he said he made one for the kids, like, last Christmas or something. In Mission Impossible movies use the voice synthesizers along with the masks as an enhancement to the masks themselves in the later Mission Impossible movies, so kind of cool. Yeah, and I love the fact that you have Blofeld having a conversation with Bond, but Blofeld thinks he's talking to Bert Saxby, and he's synthesizing his voice to sound like Willard White. Both of them are using voice synthesizers. It's brilliant and, and totally believable. I just totally love that scene. Yeah, I like it. All right, let's talk about the moon buggy. The moon buggy is a gadget in the sense that it's gimmicky. 
it's taken by Bond from a simulated moon landing, which when the U.S. landed on the moon in July 20th, 1969, there were people who thought it was all fake. I'm sure Joe has some stories about this. So this little scene in Diamonds is a nod to that. It was rumored that Sean Connery actually bought the moon buggy in 2004 for $54,000. Yeah, this was a great and believable gadget. It was a perfect vehicle for the chase in the desert outside Las Vegas as it could handle rough terrain. And Joe, I'm going to ask you actually on that. Is that would that vehicle have handled the kind of terrains that it was going over, or was there some weirdness going? No, on? it's terrible for not terrible for for desert travel because the treads are optimized for regolith, so it's good in those environments. But you know, if you're a trying to go fast and b bumping around a lot. It's not built for earth gravity bumping. It's made for earth bumping. I mean, moon bumping. So over time, it's, it's more prone to break. It's, it's never meant to be speedy because on the moon, the faster you go, those little bumps, you're going higher and everything is going farther. It's not what you want in a vehicle. Plus you're risking flipping. Remember the, the biggest threat to the Rover was, was tipping over. And in the terrain that's up there uh, on the moon, it's a lot, I mean, those craters that you see that, that look kind of small are actually very, very large. There's smaller craters and larger craters, but you can sort of go around them. On Earth, it's different. The topography is actually, in some ways, depending on where you are, I mean, these are big plants, but in this case, I'd rather be on the moon by far in that thing um, <laughs> than, than with Bond. All right, cool. Okay, then we need to look up to see Bond's grappling hook. When he rides the elevator up from the outside roof and fires this version of a piton with claws that grab so Bond could swing out to get where he needed to be. There were guns like this. Well, I believe this is believable, but as far as I've been able to find, these are actually a fictional thing. So we say, you just said that there were guns like this, but I haven't been able to find one. Everything I read when I look up piton guns tells me that they're fictional. I mean, James Bond uses one in Goldeneye, and we also see them in Alien versus Predators in 2004 and in Cliffhanger in 1993. It's a cool idea, but I'm not sure if they're real. I have not been able to find anything that says anything other than they're fictional. I, th I think the real issue with these types of gadgets is the amount of propellant you would need to accomplish this. Yet kind of airbag technology, though, in automobiles is similar in a way, using a charge to explode a bag instantly, and it's instant. So I think it's possible, but the projection device would probably be much larger than anything Bond's going to fit into his pocket or something. I don't know. Joe, any insight into that? To me, it's a good DIY. I mean, you don't have to do too much changing around for, you know, to, to convert a, a harpoon or, or any kind of compressed gas gun to carry that. So as a hack, it's pretty, it's pretty easy. So I, I always chalk it up as believable. You know, if you need it, you make it. These but, people seem to need it. They made it. Move but, on, right? Um, I'm less <laughs> forgiving when it's military equipment or space equipment. But when it's, you know, and, and I know from, from personal sort of, from, from professional sort of experience that they do build one-off items. Those intelligence shops, they, they do that. That's, you know, they, they don't have to go to a full rate production to get a piece of equipment in the hands of someone who needs it. So, you know, and if this is an infiltration, if this is something happens off into MI6, which it seem, sure seems to, why not, you know, make a dozen or, or, or 24 of them and, um, or as many double O's as needed. So 
it doesn't rankle me too bad. Okay. Yeah, the, the the size of it is is always the problem, right? Like yeah, the yeah. amount of compressed gas that you need right. to project it. You'd have to probably optimize it for whatever the mission was. And Bond is always equipped with stuff that seems specific, but good equipment is more broad than that, unless it's tailored for one specific mission, which is not usually what he's up to. So so the believability definitely shifts to the to the BS side of the spectrum, but but not not for nothing, you know, that those kinds of systems are not that complicated if you really wanted to build one. Yeah, except that you gotta have the wire or the cable or whatever that you're shooting. You have to have a place to store that. And yeah. you never yeah, see that came from. tightly coiled. There's certain physical restraints. You know, it's not fitting in Bond's pocket. <laughs> I don't think it's fitting in his pocket. I don't think so. <laughs> He'd be coiled around his whole body and then spool out, but he would be moving like the marshmallow man. Yeah, I think Timothy Dalton in one of the Bond movies took it out of his cummerbund. Okay, they could fit a lot in a cummerbund depending on how far you got to mm-hmm. go, but yeah, it's used yeah, over and over in spy movies for sure. <laughs> So if you optimize it, that cord is sort of optimized for the weight of the user. So he would know exactly how far he that could climb up to support his weight before the tensile strength snaps and stuff like that. You got to assume all these calculations are going through a super spy head while he's in action doing these things um, and doing exact precise estimates of the distances and yeah, everything. Yeah. He's a real genius on many, many fronts. <laughs> Ah, that's good. It makes it really believable. But <laughs> hey, it's fun. <laughs> All right. Now let's talk more about the gadget we opened the episode with, Bond's entrance to the oil rig towards the end of the movie in a water sphere that he can move inside of to advance his way to the platform. It was quite an entrance. It was dramatic. And there are really companies now where you can get into one of these things mostly on land, though, and play. Look up Zorbing, Z-O-R-B-I-N-G, which stands for Globe Riding, Sphering, and Orbiting. You can get in one and roll where, where down a hill. Where does the Z come into that? Huh? <laughs> where does the Z come into that? Yeah, I don't know. Zorbing. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you can get in one, and you can roll down hills and have fun. Although, I always wondered when, he, when Bond is in it, how, how, how does he know where he's going? <laughs> he gets right into that little container thing by the oil rig perfectly. It's like, okay. Now, we, we've seen something like this in a couple of other spy movies as well. So, for one, we have in James Bond, The World is Not Enough, that inflatable jacket thing that saves Bond and Electra yeah. from the avalanche is very similar to this. And also, in that movie that I love to go back and talk about, Spies in Disguise, the kids' movie, there's a gadget there called the inflatable hug which is very similar and used in a similar manner of somebody being in it as they're dropped and it protects them. There's motorcycle jackets that automatically inflate to protect you upon impact. I'm a big fan of biomimicry. If it works in nature, it should work in for humans too and in our designs of gadgets and vehicles especially. And you don't see nature doing this too much. The, the round things in the ocean are usually settling down or bobbing very calmly. Things that want to go fast and not seen very quickly, they're streamlined, birds and fish and such. So I, I looked at that and I, and I, you know, and I, you say, is the hamster wheel on top of the waves really the infiltration device or safety device? You need to get away <laughs> afterwards, you know, it's, it's not quite there for me. I, I like Timothy Dalton's stingray underwater yeah, yeah. sort of biomimicry kind of thing. I, that's what I was thinking. 
Yeah. Well, yeah, and it's very in, it's very inobtrusive coming with the parachutes <laughs> out of the sky <laughs> and everything. They see it coming, yeah. but they don't know what it is. Yeah, but then he says he's the inspector for something <laughs> or whatever. It's like, yeah, that's the way to arrive. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Also in this oil rig scene, Blofeld has this mini sub, just kind of cool. And it's almost triangular in shape. And it's pretty cool for a quick getaway, except that Bond, of course, foils Blofeld's exit. And Tom and I actually saw this vehicle on display at the Bond in Motion Museum in London, which was pretty neat. And so we we could swim with this one, I think. Like, <laughs> yeah, you have to love the bath of sub. It was Blaufeld's escape gadget that ended up being used against him. Mini subs are definitely believable, and I'll swim with you on this one. <laughs> yeah. I like that. So the one gadget that I that we hadn't talked about yet in here that I really liked in Diamonds Are Forever, and it makes me laugh when I see it. It's not that ridiculous at all, and I'm talking about the RPM controller ring that Q uses in the casino to hit winners on the slot machines. I mean, this thing was brilliant. Yeah, I mean, I liked it. It was a cool device to unrandomize slot machines, ensuring that a jackpot is won every time. So somehow I think the casinos would look unfavorably on this type of gadget really coming into circulation or would have had them in cuffs or out in the back alley in about three seconds. (laughs) Yeah, this was 71. He would have been in the back alley. He wouldn't have been in cuffs. Yeah, he would have been in the back. (laughs) And he he would have likely been caught because one of the things that gets all of these guys that do stuff like this in the casinos is greed. He had every every slot machine in a row paying off. But people do come up with all sorts of different ways to try to cheat at the slots. And it just cracked me up to see Q do this thing. He couldn't do what he did now, but he could have in the early 70s, he would have been able to. In the old days, the reels would spin and where they would stop, they would stop. But now what actually happens is when you hit the button, it goes to a server, to a a random number generator, and that server just tells the wheels where to stop. And so it's all programmed. There's no, you you don't have the ability to manipulate it, which is why today when you see people trying to do the, to get the slots, what they tend to try to do is to try to just have the machine just empty its till. And it's not based off of the wheels. So it's, it's, it's kind of interesting to see that the Nevada Gaming Commission wouldn't have liked this then, but that, that thing wouldn't work today. No. no, I don't think it would have worked then for long either. Like we said, <laughs> the back alley was a very popular place for people like that. <laughs> the way he did it, it, you know how in disaster movies, they always sort of try to calculate the amount of property damage that's done by the end of it? Well, that scene is catastrophic for the casino industry. It's the way that he did it was so, it wasn't to get away with it. It, was, it made this big gesture that showed that the entire system could, is hackable. Yeah. So yeah. that caused untold amount, of, uh, I don't know, millions, certainly, I don't know. In, in today's terms, it would cost billions of dollars to prove that your system is corruptible. Yeah. He's a master hacker, he was, on top of everything. And he didn't have to do that. He was, it was an indictment against the casino industry. He did that just to do it. Um, he didn't yeah. have to do and they changed, It they wasn't changed. a green play. It was a, something else. I yeah, mean, that's true. And they, they changed their ways once they moved to the server-based RPG. 
Yeah. I mean, it's it's totally different now because they got rid of the ability to do the manual manipulation like that. But imagine if a hacker got in the system and proved did that exact same display one time yeah. today. There, the the ripple effect would be billions of dollars yeah. and complete reprogram. Oh man, it would be a horrific. And he did it just for a kick almost. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah Q's got yeah, the knowledge. I've got to say, I do like that scene with uh, Tiffany Case, and you can tell that he's he's not doing it for the greed. He just he's, he says something along the lines of, "I've been wanting to give this a try for years." It's just like <laughs> he, he just wants to see if it works. That's hacker one That's every hacker <laughs> sort of have says that at some point in the career. Usually after the FBI calls him. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. Well, my favorite thing now with there's actually this Russian ring they've caught that. They've gone through, because the random number generator in that server-based thing isn't truly random. I mean, no, no random number generator really is. And there was somebody who was able to figure out the patterns, and they change them over time, and the crooks figure out the patterns again. And what they were doing, unlike trying to have every machine pay off, they were taking a couple machines giving them $1,000 total and then leaving. So you had all these small payouts they were hitting, by doing the hacking, yeah. which made it a lot harder to catch. Yeah, it's like counterfeiting small bills instead of bigger yeah. bills, you know? Yeah. You pass them a little easier. Kind of yeah. nice. All right. Are there any other gadgets we missed here in Diamonds Are Forever? I think we... There are the tons of them. The only thing would be the bomb surprise. The bomb surprise at the end, which is, is a cute little scene when they think everything's all... Every Bond movie, of course, you think he's finally clear. Everything's good. He's on a ship. He's got, you know, Tiffany Case with him and everything else. Ah, nice. Tom and I visited Tiffany Case's house, by the way, in Amsterdam. Well, we didn't get in, but <laughs> we got to the front door. <laughs> she wasn't there, Dan. She wasn't there. <laughs> she wasn't there at the time. Uh, anyway. I was so... say, what color wig was she wearing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, right. Bond's got some good lines for that, too. Uh... <laughs> All right. So the bomb surprise, I mean, okay. The henchmen, Wint and Kid, are attempting the one last attempt to kill Bond on the on the ship as he's, you know, sailing away with Tiffany and hidden in the cake as there were the waiters bringing wine and their dinner and so on is a bomb. All right. It's kind of cute how Bond uses the cake against them and making sure that they both get a little deathly slice of cake. But ah, what an ending, huh? I don't know. <laughs> Is there anything to say about that? That's pretty much it. It's a bomb. I think you guys are fairly comprehensive. All right, we have to reassemble some of these gadgets we just took apart in Diamonds Are Forever. So that's a wrap of our look at these gadgets in Diamonds Are Forever. And thanks again to Joe for joining us. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. So that's a wrap. This has been Dan Silvestri. Tom Pizzotto. Vicky Hodges. And Joe Papalardo. A SpyMovieNavigator.com. We hope you liked our look at the gadgets in Diamonds Are Forever. Be sure to tell your friends about us and listen to our other podcasts on your favorite podcast app. And watch our videos on our YouTube channel. Our show name is Cracking the Code of Spy Movies. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it.